Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. On April 22, 1519, Hernan Cortez and his army landed on the Yucatan Peninsula. Coming with his army were 16 horses. And with the subsequent Aztec conquest, the horse returned to continental North America. April 22, 1519 marks the 500th anniversary of the horse's reintroduction to mainland North America. Previously, the ancestral horse had been wiped out thousands of years ago. To commemorate this anniversary, we have this three-part podcast series with Dr. Deb Bennett, who is a leading authority on the horse's migration in North America and equine anatomy. This is the second episode in the series, and in it, we'll talk with Dr. Bennett on the horse in Mexico with Cortez's conquest of the Aztecs. She'll tell us about Bernal Diaz, the soldier and horseman who tells us the most about this event in history. But first, we'll hear from our sponsor, Castle Plastics. Castle Plastics is a fifth-generation family-owned and operated injection molding manufacturing business. The year 2020 marks the celebration of our 100th anniversary. For over 30 years now, we have dedicated our production capabilities to the equine industry with our vast assortment of superior hoof pads. We take pride in both the innovation and quality of all the products that we have developed and introduced to the market over the years, as well as the fact that each and every item that leaves our facility is manufactured in-house in the USA. Castle pads currently are used globally by the majority of all hoof care professionals. Contact us at 1-800-9-CASTLE or visit us online at castleplastics.com for product and supplier information. So, you know, we, we've developed in the Caribbean, uh, they've made it to Panama, but now it's time to reach mainland Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula. Why do you think it took so long for them to arrive there and and Cortez with his army of hundreds arrives with 16 horses? In 1513, you have Cortez's invasion of Mexico. And when they come ashore at Cozumel, uh, Bernal Diaz records who, uh, Bernal Diaz was uh, one of Cortez's captains and who later wrote a memoir of his of his adventures during this you know the conquest of Mexico because he survived it and later became the governor of Cuba but Bernal Diaz attests that a lot of the horses came ashore dead lame and they had to ride them immediately because the Indians were already aware that they were going to need to drive these guys away down to the beach with already armed and yelling at them and shooting arrows at them and it, they were able, but nonetheless, they were able to win this battle on lame horses because the Indians, the Aztecs, had never seen a horse. So it was terrifying to them. And they certainly had never seen a man shape on top of a horse. Indeed, the, the Aztecs initially believed, as did most other from reports, that's what most of the other Native peoples thought at first was that the horse man was itself a new kind of animal that they could that they could come apart and they also some of them thought they were supernatural and couldn't be killed so the aztec chieftains who were smarter and realized what the real deal was made an effort in every battle to chop the dead horse's bodies up and ship the parts 
or have them taken by courier to every local village so that they could have proof that this was killable, that, they, that the horse was not a supernatural animal and could be killed. <laughs> Good old Bernal Diaz gives it a, a physical description and an opinion about the, the trainability or training of each and every one of them. Yeah. And it's a very charming read because Bernal Diaz loved them. He loved the horses and he appreciated truly what that meant. And, and, and he said the most famous quote from Bernal Diaz is, after God, we owe the victory to our horses. And that was, that was absolutely true. So why it took so long? Oh, they were squabbling in Cuba. <laughs> and it, it, sure they were, because there is, I told you, you had to have a license. Well, so like maybe there was more than one applicant for the license. And these guys became deadly rivals. So Cortez had a couple of rivals, and he was, Cortez was a slimy lawyer who is not well remembered in, by Mexicans. Let's talk about Cortez. He was the secretary to the governor of Cuba. Yeah. And when we last spoke about this, you know, you're, you're trying to be fair in your book to, you know, give an accurate view of, of conquistadors and the natives. But, you know, out of the conquistadors, he's not a particularly nice guy. No, he's not. And there was one worse, and that was Bizarro, who was a complete thug, a, a, like a, a clown, a complete crude thug. But Cortez, at least, was an educated person. <laughs> <laughs> so he could read and stuff, which which Bizarro could not. But, uh, yeah, Cortez had to outmaneuver, and often in a hurry. He, he had to make snap decisions and take the, the seize the moment and that's how he got his expedition together because uh, his rivals were also preparing expeditions and the guy who got there first was going to be the winner mm. so and Cortez had you know considerable difficulty uh, he didn't always have the luck on a couple of crucial occasions he did get lucky and was able to capture the ships of like Grijalva, who was one of his rivals. And that, that helped him a lot because in the initial battles with the first 16 horses, uh, some of those horses got killed. And some of them never got sound even after they got off the boat. So they were not as serviceable as, you know, a soldier might have wished. So they used them as what they could, but, you know, they were going to make the best use of the resources they had to try to win whatever confrontations they were going to have with the Aztecs. By warfare, they conquered the country. So here we are, April 1519, and the arrival of Cortez. Did the Aztecs have any any contact previously, and, and were they aware of what the the conquistador armies would bring, in particular the, the horses and war dogs? Um, the Aztecs had a religion which taught them for whatever strange serendipitous reason, that there would come one day up out of the ocean a white god who they they would ultimately not be able to conquer. And this was a prophecy among them. And so well, their attitude when Cortez arrived, I mean, the Aztec king was all-powerful, and he had spies and he had messengers, you know, secret messengers that would bring him... Uh, intelligence about these invaders. And when he heard the intelligence reports, in his heart of hearts, he knew that his day had come. 
And this altered his reactions in a way prevented him from defending his country. That, yeah, because they had a, a, almost a fatalistic belief. I mean, this is now, we do not absolutely know because the records on the Indian side are always warped by the fact that they were reported by priests who were not on their side. Even the most sympathetic European Catholic priest uh, is still a European Catholic priest. So even though some priests protested vehemently about the mistreatment of the native peoples and the repeated way that they were cheated and, and, and lied to, or, or worse, abused and enslaved, certainly there were religious fathers who, who abhorred this, but they still did not, they're incomers, they don't fully understand as their culture. And nobody, uh, today, those records or much of that information is, you know, forever lost. We cannot absolutely know. But that, so what I'm telling you is what it appears, what appears to be the case from the existing records is that the Aztecs were funny about this and they, they did not make an out and out uh, effort to expel these guys because they could have. And yet they didn't, and they could have. They easily, overwhelmingly more numbers, but they were afraid of the horses, especially at first. And then they had this prophecy about the white god, and maybe there was some hubris in it too, in that the, maybe the Aztec king believed that it, they could peaceably coexist, and that he could incorporate this god with his swan ships with his, you know, that's what the sails looked like to them. They looked like giant birds to the, to the natives. And maybe, maybe he thought, and it appears that he tried to incorporate them with diplomacy. But again, um, the Spaniards were absolutely intolerant of the Aztec religion, which involved human sacrifice and were, were, were appalled by the, the appearance of the, of the Aztec priests. Um, and there are descriptions of, you know, these guys covered in blood and, and all that stuff. And, it, and, you know, and of course this is ironic because human sacrifice was still being practiced in Europe at the same time <laughs> in certain cultures so, and in other places in the world. So the deal is um, it's just a culture clash. These guys are completely unable to appreciate each other's culture, and they have no motivation for even trying. And particularly, that's true of the Europeans. So the Indians may have tried to, to coexist and maybe deluded themselves that that was somehow going to be possible, but it just did not happen. Yeah, well, and it was it was rather swift, wasn't it? Uh, you know, you, there's 16 horses, uh, some of them disappear, but it only... What maybe a year and a well, half after, until they captured after, the capital? Yeah, yeah. After he after he captures Grijalva's fleet, he gets a, I think he gets another forty out of that. Forty horses counted for a lot, and then he captured a couple of other guys' ships as well. And also, they began breeding them. So by the third year, they already had foals on the ground. Well, that's that's a point worth raising. By the way, how did they maintain these animals? Because like, who's growing hay? Who's growing oats? Nobody. So 
and this is true for Native Americans too, <laughs> only one Indian tribe of record ever successfully bred one colt, and those are the Nez Perces. All the other Indians, what what happened to the horses in the winter? Like, tell me, tell me how the Sioux Indians were, were farming hay or growing oats. Okay, so how did they feed their horses? Well, if there was grass growing, that was good. But in the winter, when the grass was covered or dead, maybe they could survive on on bark scrape, right? Kinney Kinnick, inner 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 bark of of trees that were benign, like mulberries, for example. Um, and certain other trees that that you can grow, or cottonwoods that grow in the Great Plains, uh, they could get, get enough roughage into them. But most of them just died. So they'd have a horse a year or two, and then it would croak, and they would then have to go on a raid. And this was big, big, you know, big fun for the guys, for the braves. So they they would uh, raid another tribe and steal theirs, or else raid Santa Fe or uh, some uh, some uh, European settlement and steal theirs. But they never raised any horses. They never bred any horses. They couldn't feed them. So, and that's why the Nez Perce uh, were six, two reasons for why the Nez Perce could do it. One was they had been instructed pretty thoroughly by the French, being way up in the Northwest. The French used to come down across what is now the Canadian border and trade with them. And, the, you know, the Lewis and Clark expedition records that the Nez Perce technique for gelding colts was way better than the technique known to Lewis and Clark. And why? Because it was the French technique. It, it was a different technique than what the English used. And it had been taught to the Indians by French explorers and traders who came west and then south. So that's reason number one. They, they could geld colts. That means... You don't just get promiscuous breeding to any stud with any mare or fight between the males. You've got geldings. It's the only tribe that ever produced them. And the other reason is they live in the Willamette Valley, which is green all year round. So they didn't have to grow any hay. They it just grew there. But that's certainly not true in the in the you know in the Great Basin or in the Great Plains. So let don't let's go out with. I mean, we try to be have our eyes open as to what actually occurred. Instead of letting Hollywood movies or the sentimentality of Hollywood movie stars who know nothing at all about livestock um, influence what we believe. Okay, so here we are during that time in which Cortez landed and then also Cortez pirates, among other Spanish ships, were growing the horse population or at least bringing it to Mexico. can you talk a little bit about the the horsemanship and how they cared for the, the livestock? Well, um, you know, the Mexican uplands, which became like the valley of uh, Cuernavaca, that was Cortez's private acquisition. He claimed Cuernavaca. That's a huge valley in upland Mexico. That's, that's near Mexico City, but not that near. And it's ideal horse country. So again, that they don't they don't farm any hay. The Spanish the Spanish don't farm any hay either. <laughs> they don't farm hay to any extent in Spain today. <laughs> Why? The two greatest horsemanship countries in Europe are Spain and Hungary. And why is that? Because they are the natural plains of Western Europe. That's why, mm. because it's horse country. 
you don't have to worry too much about how you're going to fodder them in the winter because you can you can practice transhumans and a lot of the especially the Hungarians were very much uh, nomadic until quite late so the Magyars and the Avars both were were almost like similar to some of the steppe tribes that are transhumans they're, they're nomads so they live in tents and they move their camp when they when they run out of food that's what the Native Americans did too to try to keep their horses in it, to get them feed. So they'd go where the buffalo were, you know, so they could hunt. But they also would move because their horses had grazed the local uh, whatever was growing locally down to where there, there wasn't any grass left. So they're going to have to change pastures. They're going to have to move. So the Spanish do not put up fences. Have you tried driving in Mexico today? Have you tried driving in rural Mexico? When the, when the guys from, from my natural history museum at the University of Kansas uh, would get a, a, a permit, because we used to do quite a bit of cooperative work with the Mexican uh, department of, uh, that, that governs natural history investigations, okay, biological surveys and such. So our graduate students used to go down there, and they were strictly enjoined not to drive at night because they they don't fence the livestock. And if you drive at night in Mexico, in rural Mexico, the chances of you crashing into a donkey are pretty high. So and this is also true of a lot of our tribal uh, lands uh, north of there. This causes loss of livestock because inevitably some of them are going to get loose. Some of them will come up to be fed and watered and will respond to having, you know, vaqueros out there or cowboys out there who can round them up and bring them in. But inevitably, you're going to lose some. And they get off into the grass, and this is how our Mustang populations got started, is from escaped livestock because they don't fence their range. Okay, so now we're they've brought their husbandry uh, style from Spain. Uh, I guess maybe looking at uh, strategies and tactics, how how did they use the the war horse against the Aztecs? In the manner in which they had been accustomed in Europe, <laughs> they, all of these guys rode in ambosías. Okay, that's a Spanish phrase meaning they rode in both seats. And the both seats, the two seats, uh, which are being referred to is Estradiota and Alajineta. Okay? Estradiota is the derivative, it's a hybrid style between a still older style called Alabrida, which is how the old heavy armored knights of the 15th century rode. That's Alabrida. And the, and the Spanish word, the Spanish phrase means riding off your hands riding off the bridle, a la brida. And, and by the opposite style was more favored and widely favored, uh, indeed universal, among Muslims and all the nomadic tribes. And there's a much older style, and that's called a la jineta in Spanish. And that, that, what that phrase means is that it's a style of riding suitable for riding on a genet which was the characteristic Muslim 
warhorse, standing 13 two hands high, hardly ever over 14 hands. In fact, there there are no horses uh, really uh, at any time up until all oh, the middle of the 19th century or the, the 1900 that stood much bigger than that. See, that's another spot where Hollywood has twisted your brain. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, there is not a single knight in the whole history of the universe that ever sat on a draft horse. They did not ride draft horses. They did not ride shires. There were no shires of the type and form. There was a shire horse, but it stood 13-3 and never more than 14 hands. The king himself would have a 14-hand horse. I and mean, if you want proof of this, all you have to do is learn how to look at artwork. Don't take it as made up. It's not made up. Most artwork until the, the Impressionist period, which is a 19th century thing, was quite literal and was meant to be looked at by people who couldn't read. So all the details, the details were like really important to the viewer. He wanted to see exactly what kind of stirrup that guy had exactly what kind of nails were used to hold the shoes on. And the artist tried, within his idiom, he tried very hard to show it exactly as it was. So when you see a, uh, an engraving of Charles V, who was a good six foot two, there's a famous bas-relief of him on, on the palace doors of his palace in Seville. And it shows him as a young man, maybe 20 years old, riding one of Ferdinand's captured uh, genets. Because of course, on the, there were two really important events that happened in 1492 during Ferdinand's reign. One was the discovery of the Americas or the claimed discovery of Americas by Columbus. The other event was that on January 2nd of that same year, the last Muslim stronghold in Spain was conquered by Ferdinand and all of the royal stables that were the Muslim, the, the stables of the, of the, of the caliph were taken over by Ferdinand. And they, they got the benefit of all of the Muslim hape science. Why do you think uh, a lot of the names of stars begin with the, with the letters A-L, mm -hmm. right? Al-Dabarak, because they're, they're Arabic words. And that's because astronomy was practiced by Muslims. Science in general was kept alive by Muslims. But Spanish is highly influenced by Islam because Islam sat in the Iberian Peninsula. They came in there in 711 AD and they occupied the Iberian Peninsula for the next, nearly the next, well, uh, 700 years, just shy of 700 years. So that, and they were at war the whole time, I mean, off and on. Sometimes they were at peace. Sometimes they took each other's kids as apprentices. Um, there was a complex system of brotherhood and loyalties and religious alliances and religious clubs that sometimes excluded each other and sometimes included each other. But they're, they're like lovers. In Spain, the the, uh, the Muslim component or the Muslim culture and the Christian culture, to me, they look like lovers who alternately fight with each other, and but who are fascinated with each other. 
And so there is a good deal of cultural interchange, which altered the appearance of Christian art and architecture in Spain, and also had some influence going the other way, from the Christian side to the Muslim side. But And that certainly that affected the tack, because that's where we get cowboys. Cowboys are vaqueros, which is the that's the Spanish word for buckaroo. Buckaroo is just a mispronunciation of vaquero. And we'll get to the vaqueros with, you know, their emergence post-Cortez conquest. But uh, a figure you've mentioned a couple of times and why we have uh, a lot of knowledge, uh, Barnell Diaz del Castillo. You know, some of the interesting things, you know, we, we can read in there. Uh, he mentions a blacksmith, uh, Francisco. Well, you they know, had to have one, of course. You know, what do we know of the uh, uh, the farrier's work of back then? Not much. The, the best examples of old, old, old horseshoes that you will ever see, if you're ever in London, go to the British Museum. And there there is a section up there on the third floor with really old horseshoes. But I don't know enough, you know, to really interpret and I wish there was a farrier who would like to do a thesis on this. You know, somebody that's like Doug Butler, who's really good at the forge, uh, who can look at one of these old shoes and say, ah, that's how, that's the shape of the ball-peen hammer they were using a pound on it with. Or, or maybe could look at the crystal structure of the iron and tell us how hot they were heating the shoes, which would also imply what they were using for you know, was it coal or was it wood in the forge? I mean, how are they heating up their forge? You know, how do they build their pile? So certainly um, the horses in, in Ferdinand's Spain and in, and in uh, Charles V's Spain, and if you look at the engravings and pictures of these guys, you can see that horses are wearing horseshoes. As are, certainly if you look at, like, look at the, the, the old famous uh, engraving of the knight done by Duret, the D-U-R-E-R, uh, Durer, uh, who's a Dutch artist of the you know early Renaissance. Uh, he draws shoes on the horse. Leonardo da Vinci, drawings of horses often show shoes, too. And uh, so do all of the classic works on uh, higher horsemanship. And they even show some of the shoes. Now, they, these would be 18th century works, which was the period of what they call classical horsemanship. So 17, 1740s, 1730s. So certainly they had horseshoes in Europe, and they had horseshoes here too. But uh, you know, archaeological evidence of shoes—that's a tall order. I have not seen any very early horseshoes from North America ever. They, maybe there are some at the at the National Museum in Mexico City. And the other place I would look if I was looking for really old horseshoes would be the Witte Museum in San Antonio. And if anybody is liable to have some, it would be them. But I haven't seen them. What do you think of the, you know, because the idea of uh, having iron, could Cortez's horses, the horses in his army, have worn silver or gold? Yeah, they did, too. When they didn't have any iron, they'd use whatever they could get. And particularly if they'd conquered a, a rich treasury, uh, they had plenty of it. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a number of tales from different countries. One, Peru for one, Mexico, Guatemala for another one, Colombia for another one, where they 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 couldn't get any iron, so they just took their took their gold coins and melted them down and and made shoes out of gold. And that's not a bad 
material, I mean, it's a lot easier to forge than gold because it melts at a lower temperature and is quite malleable. So it's gummy, you know, when it's when it's soft. So that wouldn't have been too hard to work, uh, but not very durable either. Yeah, maybe they figured they weren't going to lose too much because the ground was soft. <laughs> so now the horse is permanently back on mainland North America. But how did it continue to spread to other areas beyond Mexico? In the next and final installment of this podcast, Dr. Deb Bennett will talk about how the horse spread beyond Cortez's army in North America and also landed at other sites through the continent. I'd like to thank Dr. Deb Bennett and our sponsor, Castle Plastics, for helping us bring this podcast to you. Thank you for listening.